0: Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Of all the sounds you'll hear this summer... <laughs> this might be your new favorite... Are you tired of not earning anything on your hard-earned money? Your path to more money starts with a certificate from Pathways Financial Credit Union. Right now, earn a 2.68% annual percentage yield on a 60-month certificate with a minimum balance of just $500. Great rates like this have helped make Pathways the fastest-growing credit union in Ohio over the last 10 years. Earn more on your money. Stop by any convenient location or check us out at PathwaysCU.com. Pathways is federally insured by the NCUA. This is the Gator Nation
1: football podcast with your hosts, Alan Williams and James DiVergilio.
0: This place is an insane asylum in the Oh my! Now we know we're just a bunch of average stiffs.
1: Welcome to the Gator Nation football podcast. I'm your host, James Virgilio, alongside Alan Williams, fresh off of a 13-6 upset over the Mississippi State Bulldogs. Alan, you and I did not get to watch this game together, but before we get into the things we normally get into in the opener, how are you feeling right now post the first significant road win in a while
2: for the skater program? I thought it was a fantastic win, and if I never have to hear another cowbell, I'll be happy about it. <laughs> We have so much to unpack on this
1: episode, Alan. This is going to be...
0: Let's say you just bought a house. Bad news is, you're one step closer to becoming your parents. You'll proudly mow the lawn. Ask if anybody noticed you mowed the lawn. Tell people to stay off the lawn. Compare it to your neighbor's lawn. And complain about having to mow the lawn again. Good news is, it's easy to bundle home an auto through Progressive and save on your car insurance. Which, of course, will go right into the lawn. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company affiliates and other insurers. Discount not available in all states or situations.
1: I think maybe one of our best episodes of the year. I don't want to put the bar out there early, but there is so much good stuff to talk about. A lot of interesting things happened in this game. Uh, Right off the bat, if you like what you hear on the show today, drop us a like on Facebook. Uh, Become a patron on Patreon, where you can give us uh, a dono. We love donos, Alan and I. Big dono fans. We have some new patrons from this week. Carly McMullen, Ups her dono to a large dono. I just I love like saying China. the word dono. How many times can I say it in one one episode? Christina Frost with a large dono. My boy Jason Landry, uh, college roommate back in the day. Now he's a doctor saving the good people in the state of Florida uh, with a large dono and an upgrade. Appreciate that. John Curdo comes in with the with a medium dono, and then we have a couple of fun ones here, Alan. The friend of esteemed Alexander Leventhal with a small dono and then a, a nice large dono from the Alexander Leventhal fan club. And, of course, our top dono supporter is still Alexander Leventhal. The man himself. Until someone knocks him off the podium. It's kind of like an old school eBay auction where no one knows what he's giving per month, but he's he's winning. And until somebody beats him, then he'll stay up there. So thanks so much for your support. As always, you can head on to Patreon and drop us a dono if you like. Uh, Also, quick piece of housekeeping. So for the past couple of years, we have been on something called Blog Talk Radio, where they have provided us with some very prime uh, deals on our podcast and distributing it to you guys and how we're able to record the show. Blog Talk Radio was purchased by a different company last year. And Without getting into the details, we are switching. This will not affect you at all, outside from the fact that because this show has now capped last week, I think a record audience for us, 15 plus thousand, maybe 17,000, look at the numbers last week. Uh, they yeah, want largest us, show
2: ever. So thanks. For yeah. Listening.
1: Largest show over last week. I appreciate that. They want us to do ads. In fact, when they said they want us to do ads, they're basically saying you have to do ads this year or we're going to remove you from our our prime status. And that prime status is very important to us to be able to produce the show for free. So therefore, you are probably or maybe have already heard an ad in the beginning of this show. You'll hear one ad in the middle of the show and then you'll hear an ad at the end of the show. So it should be three minutes of ads per episode per week which hopefully is not too harmful if you absolutely freak out about that uh, let us know we'll see what we can do but it seems to be non-negotiable but at good this news point.
2: for patrons
1: good news for patrons if you're a patron you can grab the show from patreon ad free all the time so if you are supporting there you can log and grab the show and it will be totally ad free to you for the rest of you hopefully it should not be a big deal and as a one final note we have no control over what the advertisements are. Alan and I are not looking at the ads. We don't have a clue who is doing the ads. So I know in previous years, we've had a few ads that people called us or wrote into us and said, hey, why did you pick that ad? We are not picking the ads. We don't like ads. We love to do the show ad free, but sometimes it's a necessary evil in order to get the benefits that we want. All right, enough of that garbage housekeeping. Let's get that junk out of the way. Let's get to the good stuff.
2: So, James, both of us actually picked the Gators to lose. And I know some of our friends will like to remind us of that, that we didn't have enough belief, JT Raymond style. But, you know, that was the narrative coming in, and that, I think the evidence supported that. But the Gators did win. There's some real key statistics on this. You said the key to victory would, would be holding Nick Fitzgerald to 50 yards or less rushing, and we did that. He only had 32 yards on 20 carries, which is a great for us per average. And we'll get to mine in a second, but how do you know, that was pretty big.
1: That was the key to the game in my opinion. If he if he ran well, I don't think we win that game. And you look at how close the game was, fifty yards may have been a, a good benchmark. It means he didn't break off any significant runs. He obviously didn't run wild on us and we, we did a great job of putting them in third and long. And and Alan, I think that what we said in our keys to victory were all over what exactly happened in the game. I know you had mentioned that Felipe Franks needed to take three sacks or less, and they sacked us once. And I know we also talked about it needing to be a low-scoring game, which it was. And then we mentioned the importance of putting Mississippi State in third and long, which we did. And I think when you nail all of those things, uh, you come out with a win like this one on the road. Those were
2: the keys to victory, and And, they did it.
1: And we did it. So it's fun when our keys line up. Uh, We're not actually just pulling those out of thin air, I promise. There's good science behind it. And so we're going to just pat ourselves on the back with that one. Uh, But, you know, all in all... Good win on the road, and a lot of very, very interesting things to look at, especially when we dive into the film. But before that happens, Alan, I'm going to steal your question because I did not get to watch the game with you. You were on a retreat, doing retreat-like things. What was the most impressive thing to
2: you about this win? I'm going to go kind of meta big picture before we dive into how we accomplished things like holding Fitzgerald to that rushing number or not taking as many sacks. I was really impressed by... How our team went in there and battled. I don't, want, that's like kind of coach speak, but that was an incredibly emotional environment. That crowd was keyed up. That was a big moment for everybody. It, it could have been very easy for them to let the emotion of the moment kind of ruin their performance. And I think they let it fuel it. And that's, I think that goes to their, you know, kind of character makeup and also the coaches for getting them ready for that. And, you know, props to Dan Mullen, the team for navigating that kind of tricky, tricky moment. Because that was a big game for everybody, whether Dan Mullen was willing to let on to that or not. You could tell on his face and what he was talking about after the game that that was, that was a big-time moment for them. And that was a big road win. That's a very unique situation. The fact that they were able to navigate that um, and come out with a win was huge to me.
1: Yeah, overall composure was extremely impressive.
2: A, a lot of certainly... things to be rattled at early on, too. Those false starts, the crazy environment. Didn't come unhinged.
1: Yeah, it wasn't perfect, but like we've said all along, and like I'm going to keep harping on, you can see the result of Dan Mullen being a very experienced SEC coach. He knows how to prepare his team for what is about to happen every weekend. And we were not unprepared for that environment. We knew exactly what we were getting into. You're still going to make some mistakes, but I think throughout the game, we maintained our composure. Uh, we never worried they're too high or too low. And for a team that has a lot of inexperience and has not won, you can't say enough about that in that kind of environment, that kind of emotionally charged situation. That, to me, also, Alan, was the most impressive piece of it was managing the emotions. And I think all great coaches are able to manage the emotions of their players on a week to week basis, because sometimes you want them high and sometimes you want them more neutral. And I think they had to match the energy in that stadium from the first snap. And they did. They did. You never felt like we were under energy. In fact, we were always, I feel like really in reality, over energy. All right. Most memorable
2: moment of the game for you. Uh, this is the obvious one. The sack by Donovan Steiner on the last real play of the game. Seeing him come barreling through, you know, it seemed like he was coming from like midfield to make that sack. And I yelled out, fourth and Grantham. <laughs> had like two in the morning when I was finishing watching the game. Uh, crazy that that's the end of the game. We're going to remember that for the long time, I think.
1: It did feel like a signature moment. This season could go in many different directions. But regardless, I think it's a moment as a Gator fan that you're going to remember for a while.
2: Kind of like the LSU fourth and goal stand. Even if nothing comes this season when we'll I win a national championship, that's a very memorable moment.
1: Mississippi State hadn't gotten anything done. We'd given them two penalties to drive down there. And, and now all of a sudden the game hinges on this play. And, and we call up a, an engage eight Madden Blitz which is like suicidal, it's what you do when you're just (laughs) raging in the game and you want to lose, you're either going to sack the quarterback or give up a touchdown, and we get home, and I know that we all jumped off the couch and we're like flexing and bowing up, and and Justin Seitz, who normally tries to claim that Florida football doesn't really get him all that excited, is is fired up at my house, I mean, he's amped up, he's flexing in front of the coffee table, he's just, oh, let's go, that's a fun moment, you know, we haven't had a lot of those moments, and uh, I think that was a great way to finish off this win on the road
2: so james let's go ahead and dive into let's the game analysis look at the offense let's look at the defense we'll start on offense largely successful effort considering how challenging the opponent was on defense like how were we successful in your opinion
1: yeah i think first it should be noted that the that we expected alan and i expected this game to be to be low scoring i thought we'd get 13 points we got 13 points I did not see very many ways that we were going to score more than that. So success, it should be noted, especially if you're new to the podcast, success to us in this regard is success managing the sort of broken offensive roster that we have. There's talent here and there, but this is not going to become, I think in either of our opinions, a a good offensive team by the end of this year. We're just managing what we have. And therefore to go on the road and turn it over only one time to convert a decent amount of third downs to complete 70-plus percent of your passes is definitely successful. A couple of notes that you note on a high level, we were able to maintain really good run-pass balance. That's incredibly crucial against a team like Mississippi State. I'm not a huge believer in getting this exact percentage for running and passing. I think you want to attack a defense the way they give it to you. But against Mississippi State and the way they were playing, which we're going to unpack in a little bit, uh, they, were, they were not necessarily tipping it to one way or the other. So the balanced game plan to me indicates that we truly took what they gave us, which I think was essential. And, and if we're going to pull out two main thoughts here around, i want to talk about the first way we were successful was with our game plan. And the second way was play calling. And, and let's talk specifically about the game plan here for a second. I talked about the passing attack being balanced, the running attack being balanced. What about
2: the game plan coming into this game? Do you think was really on point? Well, one thing we really had to deal with was their excellent, excellent defensive line. Had to neutralize that. So you saw the team go to something that we've been successful at and basically double, triple, quadruple down on it. And those are those, what do you want to call them, swing passes, bubble screens, quick throws to the wide receivers, uh, quick slants over the middle. Got in trouble with those one time. But basically getting the ball out of Felipe's hands as quickly as possible. And that was really successful. We have guys on the outside like Van Jefferson, Travon Grimes, who can be really effective in those roles. That you can give them the ball, they can make somebody miss and get upfield. and you're going to get probably not a touchdown, but positive yardage to maybe 10, 11, 12 yards on what is a fairly simple play. And Felipe executes those well. The ball comes out of his hand fast. It gets there on time mostly, and that's the type of play he can run well. So they allowed him to be put in a position to succeed, and that. I think that was one of the keys to keeping him from getting sacked. You know, we talked about how often is he getting sacked? Only once, because he wasn't holding on to the ball.
1: Last week we mentioned when are we going to see some more creative usage of a running-style quarterback. And the answer came in this game. Tony got several carries, but he also got the most important play of the game, if you will, from a game plan perspective. Something they'd obviously put in during the week, which is a throwback pass that he then throws a corner route to on Morrill Stevens. Actually, Alan, this is a classic flag football play that I have run a million times where you throw it back to a second quarterback to a corner route from the middle. Kind of funny to watch that play. It's like straight out of a, a James playbook, if you will. But that was part of the game plan. There was no doubt that Mullen knew exactly what we were saying last week, which is that you cannot rely on Felipe Franks to put the ball into the end zone in some of these situations yet. Let's dial up something that's tricky to steal a touchdown. And that one touchdown we stole was the difference in the game.
2: Yeah. And it was, you know, more so than the crazy tricky design, because every team was able to run that. It's when he called it and how they set it up. Because we had run a million of those plays already, and you see the safeties get sucked up by that and let more Stevens run by him. And, you know, credit to Tony for making a nice throw. Stevens caught it. So great execution, but more so great play calling. Great in the moment. When do you deploy that play? Because that mattered a ton.
1: Yeah, where game planning and play calling merged was definitely on these bubble screens. When you look at the film, we did not run the same bubble screen twice. We had some extremely creative ways to get three on two matchups. And if you're looking, if you go want to go back and watch the game or you're watching this week against LSU and you're saying, when are we running a bubble screen? The goal is to get our three players versus two of their defenders. Sometimes, especially early in the game, Mississippi state just gave us that look. So we had a very simple three receiver versus two defender set. And we were able to swing it out there and then get a, you know, a block with a guy free. But as the game progressed, we actually had a lot of exotic ways to do this. Uh, We had, we had Jawan Taylor come out and block from his spot to make it a 3v2, which is completely disguised. Uh, We had a lot of interesting movement, uh, moving a tight end across the formation and then pull someone else across to make it a three on two. Very, very well disguised. We absolutely won the battle of offensive play calling versus defensive play calling. There is no doubt about it. Mississippi State got flat out coached not only in the pregame film study work, because there were several times it looks like on film we knew if we gave them this, they were going to defend the pass or defend the run, and we caught them. And so if, you, if you're if you getting to the basics, and this is the first thing you've heard about me talk about the numbers, uh, when you're watching the Gators play, you can simply count how many people are in the box. So how many linemen and linebackers do they have versus how many people do we have in our box? How many offensive linemen, tight ends, running back, quarterback, whatever. And if you typically get a, a, a two-person advantage, like let's say a eight versus six, for example, uh, you're going you're gonna to run the ball, right? And if it's opposite, you're going to pass the ball. There were several times we skewed those numbers to make Mississippi State think we were doing one thing and then accurately predicted that in fact, they were going to adjust this way and then we adjusted in a different way. That's a classic game theory leveling concept. If I know my opponent's going to do this, then it's in my best interest to do this and show this. And we did that. That's very, very high level football. We got a lot of comments from you guys talking about how much fun it was to watch this sort of 3D chess match that was in fact going on. And without a doubt, it's conclusive from the film that we were much better prepared to execute against their defense than they were against our offense. And so that was one of the questions leading up to this week's game. We absolutely were. We still won a very close game, but our execution in this game was almost entirely due to getting the looks we wanted at the right time. And like you mentioned, Alan, calling the plays at the right time. And there's an art to that. You can't always be right. There's an art to it. And we were largely right for much of Saturday night.
2: I think we also deployed some of the most creative play design in the run game that I've seen us use thus far. We've used some of these things, but we ran a play where essentially fake handoff into like speed option that kind of stuff we were not utilizing you know, previously. Um, and that's just the tip of the iceberg. I tried to watch this on a, kind of on the run back. Every time we ran the ball, what do we do? And sometimes we gave a very traditional run look. But we added in some wrinkles there that confused what they were doing along the defensive front that allowed us to get into space. And overall, the biggest mismatch on the field, as far as i concern, concerned, was their defensive line versus off- our offensive line. Our coaches did a fantastic job of mitigating that disadvantage for us and not having the whole game turn on just how dominant they were. Now, the opposite is Tennessee the previous week. Our defensive line completely took over the game to where nothing else mattered on the field because we were so dominant in that one area. And I thought our coaches prevented that from happening. Not not that our offensive line is bad as Tennessee's or there's that as big a gap, but there's potential for Simmons and, and the rest of those guys to completely own us in this area, and that didn't happen.
1: It did not. Now, we were not without our struggles. No couple things that I noted during the game, like everyone else did. Fred Johnson, three false starts, three false starts. Are you, surpri- are you surprised Alan? They did not
2: pull him. Well, you know, Dan Mullen is not the fount of information or font of information here. When it comes to injuries, there are people discussing Brett Heggy being in a cast or other things. I don't know that we, he felt like he could go to anybody else, even with Fred Johnson struggling that much. I mean, that's a tough place. I and mean, that, there's a reason why they almost legislated out those cowbells because it's extremely distracting. I don't know. Maybe just he felt like that was the best option. He couldn't do anything else. And so we just got to deal with it. And, you know, he did get it cleaned up. It happened mostly early and then didn't happen again in the second half. Other
1: notes. One of them is recurring. Actually, two of them are recurring. One Cianti-Lewis continues to struggle blocking. I mean, just struggles. I know he slipped early on, but he's often the reason why our, our most important play action, deep threat plays do not work. I think they have to consider utilizing someone else in some of those sets.
2: Well, he's not getting as many snaps as you would expect from a senior who's the only guy who really has any experience or productivity. You're seeing Stevens a lot because I think Stevens is a superior blocker. You're seeing Gamble some. will talk about Pitts in a minute. But yes, I think they realize he's ineffective to say the least, but still maybe, I don't know, understands what we're doing the most, or the, at least that's what they feel right now, or gives us the best run look option kind of combo. But hopefully that day will end soon because he's not suited to, to do what they're asking him to do.
1: Yeah, and keep an eye on that. And you mentioned the best, the run pass combo. There's a couple times in the game where we have a clear numerical advantage and we should be running the ball. And Mississippi State is convinced we're passing the ball. And in fact, we are. And that's almost entirely based on personnel grouping. That's not the way Dan Mullen wants it to be. But because we, like you mentioned, have some deficiencies in the tight end spot, teams are able to kind of key on who's in there. And they know that if Stevens is in there, we're passing the ball like 80% of the time. And so they don't really care what the numbers in the box are. They're taking their chances by defending pass. I think it would behoove us to get anyone else besides Seante Lewis on the field to block at times just to see what's there because he's missed so many crucial plays on play action, which he's there like, as you mentioned Alan, he's there because we can do either thing and
2: it's hard for the defense to guess what's happening. But if he continues to miss these blocks, who cares at some point in time, you're going to He's not that plus of a receiver to keep him in there. You know, in those situations, I think he's not like an Aaron Hernandez who's a receiver and you'll deal with whatever deficiency he has as a blocker. Cause he's so dominant in that area.
1: Also struggling all season long
2: is Jordan Scarlett
1: catching the football. He cannot catch the football. I think it's time, Alan, to really consider how we're using him on some of these little swing passes. Second problem here, which we talked about before, is he obviously is by far the best pass protector, yes. which he is. He's done a phenomenal job in pass pro. I want to continue to highlight that. It's been a problem the past couple of years for this team. He has been a standout, but he is really hurting the team with each additional drop
2: that he's making. Yeah, what do traces. you do with that if you want to pass the ball? You want him in there, but you don't want him catching the ball. But a receiver out of the backfield is a key to this offense, and he's he's really struggling. And I don't I don't know that you can't just snap your fingers and improve that. So that, that puts the coaching staff in a bind there. I don't know how they solved that one. Now I have a note
1: here. This is not under where we struggled, but we're gonna slip it right in here. Okay. So you tend to see who coaches trust the moch in the most high leverage situations. That situation came on our last drive of the game. We we're trying to get down there and put the game away. And it was not Jordan Scarlett or P Ryan that was getting the ball. It was, in fact, our boy Pierce. Now, we've said it seems clear to us that Pierce is best with the ball in his hands. Do you think that that's an indication that he got the ball at the most high leverage time in a game that Dan Mullen wants to win maybe more than any other one? That they favor Pierce
2: when it comes to just purely running the football in situations where the other team knows we're running the football. I'm tempted to say yes, but also a note. If you notice, Lucas Kroll was also in the game at the same time, a guy I want to see more of because he seems like he could be potentially really dynamic. I doubt the staff trust him the most. It could just be a package of plays that those guys are in together, and it's their time to rotate. However many plays we had run in the game, it was their turn. But if the coaching staff was concerned about either of those guys being in just on schedule at that moment, they probably would have removed him. So either way, it shows that they have at least a modicum of trust at the end of the game that these guys are going to be able to execute. And they did. So that, I think it bodes well for them in the future.
1: Yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take the opposite track here and say that I think that that meant a lot. I think that Pierce getting the ball in that situation sends a, a signal to me that they think he's probably the best pure ball carrier we have. Which I think, judging by watching him, that's true. You also saw the high snap to Franks, which hits Pierce's arm. I totally disagree with Greg in saying that that was Pierce's fault. That's supposed to be a play-action fake. Pierce executes the fake. Frank should have just hesitated another second and thrown it. But regardless, that illustrates a slight fear of having a true freshman in there in these situations. Uh, and Pierce is, of course, a guy to watch. I think he's starting to get attention even from the national media. So keep an eye on that. I, I don't think that's an isolated situation there at the end of that game.
2: We continue to say he's earned more touches, and if he's doing the stuff he needs to do off the field, then I think we'll continue to see that show up on the field. All right, let's talk about our boy Felipe. We talk about him every week. Decent stat line, 22 of 31, 219 yards, one interception, which is not the best read from him on that play. Almost threw another one. Overall, solid performance, I think. Tell us a little bit more about what he did well and what he didn't do well.
1: I got a lot of text messages over the weekend from people saying, hey, help clear this up for me. I'm in a debate with my friends about Felipe Franks. They're telling me he's really improved. I'm telling them he's not, or vice versa, or whatever the case may be. And I think this game might be the best game yet we have, Alan, to see where he is as a passer. And the stat line is, is very much a mirage. So has he improved at the things we keep highlighting? The answer to me is no. He's still a one-read quarterback, more or less. And, and he's unable to make a second read. and In fact, he only actually made a second read on film after throwing the ball 31 times, three times, by what I can count. Did he even attempt to make a second read? One of those times, he almost threw a pick. Probably should have been a pick. Yeah, the guy, guy right was the there. Face, the guy right, read right, it right perfectly. Read it perfectly in the face. And the other two times, he wound up pretty much rolling out of the pocket and throwing it away or running forward. Uh, so he didn't make a throw. So he's, he's heavily utilizing slants, first read throws, hitches. Uh, there were some really good play designs in there where we would get a matchup where we had our slot receiver Hammond on a safety that was 10 yards off the ball. Easy money slant throw there. He had a lot of those. Uh, of course, the bubble screens, very basic, simple throws as well. So here is what we keep saying about Franks. Mullen has done a phenomenal job managing him as a level one quarterback and not attempting to make him a level two quarterback when he's not ready. He is not asking him to make a second read most of the time. He's really asking them, look at your first read. If it's there, throw it. If you get a chance to look at a second read, look at it. And then run or throw the ball away. And he's done that. He's really not turning the football over. If we attempt to ask him to do a bit more, because our receivers are open pretty frequently. Uh, We have a check down receiver open. Our slot receiver Hammond's open all the time over the middle. But if you really ask him to hang in there and do it and he's not ready, I think that 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 outweighs the, the reward of having him do it. So... Franks to me is not improved in the way that you would want a quarterback to improve but at the very beginning of this year Alan we said if Franks can just be average just league average we think this team could win eight or nine games on the high side that's exactly what's going on so I'm going to applaud him for getting to the point to where I think he is average in this system under this regime with the way we're calling plays he made some very nice throws in this game But he's not past that. If if you're thinking he's turning a corner, there's no evidence on film to indicate that's the case. He still has a tremendously difficult time making a read. This is best highlighted, Allen, by maybe one of the most important plays in the game on film. They went to a cover zero. They played true man defense with no safety. You dream of this as an offensive coordinator. Dream of this situation. We had a five wide sets. We have five receivers. We are better than them, I think. Receiver to corner. Van Jefferson runs a slant route toast his man for an easy touchdown but we're not looking there we're looking at Swain who on the pre-snap has his defender lined up high and inside right in the slant window dead in the slant window the first thing Frank should do pre-snap is say clearly the slant to Swain is not going to be there I will look at someone else but he doesn't he stares at Swain throws the ball to Swain Swain kind of stumbles out of the break and complete pass Mullen spent a good amount of time on the sideline talking with him after that play. I think that indicates where Franks is. If you're a coach, you're kind of going crazy because if you pause the film, there's two areas he could have gone there pre-snap that would have been smart. Both of them wound up being wide open. Uh, but I think in general, Franks just isn't there. I think in, in a moment, he locks onto a guy he likes, happens to be Swain. He locks onto whatever he sees. He thinks he's going to trust his arm. Uh, and for for better or for worse, throwing a lot of slants, which we begged for last season, is good. They're mainly safe, especially in the right looks that we're looking at. And he throws the ball so hard, a lot of times these guys aren't picking them off, except for when the ball gets tipped, which is what happened on that on that route earlier. So that's all to say the film suggests that he's not improved to level two, right? He's not at the point where he can make a second read or you can really trust him to do some more complicated things. But if you're playing a team that's evenly matched like Mississippi State, you can probably trust him at this point in time not to give the game away. And, and that's a skill in and of itself, especially, I think, at where we are with this program, right? Program building, Wise Allen. We're trying to attract recruits. We're trying to send a signal to college football that we're going to come back, that we're on the way up. And winning games at this stage will do that. It will do that. And I think we're seeing that. So I'm going to, I'm going to say, all in all, I'm not seeing anything that leads me to believe this guy is really taking a big step forward. But I am seeing Dan Mullen expertly manage what he has in Felipe Franks. And, and you can't say enough about that. You cannot, Because I'll tell you right now, Joe Moorhead is not doing that with Nick Fitzgerald. That's costing him games. So you're seeing the difference right there in front of you.
2: Agreed. And I think you can be encouraged by Felipe's play and what they asked him to do this week. He didn't not perform. Like, you know, if you call that many bubble screens and he completes almost all of them, good. I think it highlights what he can't do. But still... Let's celebrate what he can do and where he has that in the system. And, you know, there is a path forward for him to improve in this area. I don't think he's going to become Steve Young dissecting defenses, but he might not have to considering the talent we have at those skill positions. So if you've got Van Jefferson and he's in a plus matchup, you know, the coaches can help him diagnose that slightly better pre-snap. He's got a much, he's got much more opportunity to do that than to, go through the progression at lightning speed, going from first to second to third read. If we can get him to say, so, okay, slant to Hammond, not open, more likely Van Jefferson open. That's where I think he can, you know, more time in the system, more quickly you analyze the more quickly you see the keys of what the defense is doing, what we're trying to accomplish on offense on that play. I do think he could get better at that. That's That's still the hope for me. We'll see how that shakes out. All right, let me ask you, though. We only scored 13 points in this game. Does the low scoring output bother you?
1: It doesn't bother me because, like we just said, I have a, some people would say a pessimistic view, but I don't I don't think so. I think my view, I tend to hope, is objective and essentially informed by what goes on on tape and what I see the coaches doing. Mm-hmm. Thankfully, this year, I can make perfect sense of what the coaches are doing. Last year, the year before, the year before that, there was really no rhyme or reason to what was happening, which is why we'd sit here and go crazy on the pod. I understand exactly what's happening right now, and and I, th- I don't think there's much else you can do. Really, I don't think so. I, I think Mullen would play Trask or he'd play Emory Jones if he felt like there was a shot they could improve upon Franks. Uh, but Franks has proven this. Like we said, don't underestimate the power of not turning the ball over. Our opponent this week, LSU, has a quarterback whose numbers don't look very great in Joe Burrow, but he has yet to throw a single pick. So in college, that's a very important thing to do. In the NFL, you will not get by with that. You have to take some risk to move the ball. Otherwise
2: you're Sam Bradford.
1: Yeah, which is a great, a great point right there. And you're just not going to get it done. So it doesn't bother me because I expected it. Mississippi State's a top 15 defense. I expect us not to move the ball against them. But, you know, thankfully we were competent. We looked competent. We had a game plan. It worked. I think all in all the coaches said to themselves, we need to win a game in the teens. All we want is a shot to win this game at the end of the game. And they got that. And so I think game plan with tactics wound up working. And that's good coaching.
2: Anytime you can get a road win against the top 25 team in the SEC, I'll take the score. And, and you know, if we had just been maybe one of the must champ teams where the offense was incredibly incompetent and the defense through a heroic effort, willed us to victory. You're like, man, that's just feels like we can never repeat that again. They performed well. And weirdly, the way the game went, there were, we keep coming back to this every week, there weren't a lot of plays run. We're not playing at a fast tempo. Mississippi State wasn't able to play at a fast tempo. A lot of running the ball, a lot of completed passes, so the clock went quickly. You're you're not going to pile up a ton of yards and points in that style of game, but we're able to accomplish what we wanted to. And really the key to the victory, other than the stuff that we said at the top, was the defense, their performance. It was a fairly dominating performance. We held them to six points. How do we accomplish that? Same thing
1: that happened on the offense happened on the defense. This was Grantham's finest effort along with the defensive staff. We had phenomenal pre-snap looks that consistently messed with Mississippi State's reads. Uh, And and a a great example of this is we were, we were using corner blitzes to disguise the numbers. So it would look like pre-snap Mississippi State's got an eight on six. They should run the ball. And then we corner blitz to make it eight on seven or whatever the case may be. And we were timing those almost perfectly to the point to where we'd bait them into a run. They'd run. We knew it. We'd play a run. We'd shut them down. And that was a massive contributor to us keeping them in those third and longs. Really, really, really good play design. I'm pretty sure all game long, Nick Fitzgerald had not a single clue where the pressure was coming from. He was not confident in his key reads. Uh, At times he thought... We have advantage in the passing game, and then we drop two guys back. I mean, he just did not have a clue, and that comes down to Allen, something we talked about before the season. The 3-4 defense is an exceptionally tricky defense. We're starting to put in more and more movements pre-snap. We're starting to shift linemen around. We're starting to give you different looks. It's especially effective against a quarterback like Nick Fitzgerald, who is not really a quarterback. Now, this begs the question about Joe Moorhead using him on passing downs in something that's much more complicated – Than what we are doing with Franks, we talked about Franks and Fitzgerald are actually kind of very similar guys with how they throw the ball. And I think you saw on display, more head style, more vertical passing, uh, deeper comeback routes, harder routes to throw. He's hit or miss on those routes. And if we're getting home, we're getting pressure. They're even harder. Uh, So all in all, the game plan was fantastic coming into this game. We had a fantastic game plan for them on the chessboard defensively. The 3-4 defense was at its best. Since we've seen it, uh, and this defense was entirely different than what we saw under Randy Shannon last year, where it was a very vanilla lineup, play the way you play. And I think we reaped the benefits of that in this game.
2: And I don't think it always comes down to scheme or personnel, but I want to highlight the personnel side. Again, uh, CC Jefferson you know, had a mistake late with a face mask, but his presence along anchoring one of those spots, but really polite in Zuniga, dominating this, dominating this game at points. If you watch the film of Kentucky versus Mississippi State, you saw Josh Allen terrorizing him with speed rush around the end. And these guys were successful in a lot of big spots of putting pressure on Fitzgerald, of blowing up run plays. Mississippi State had to account for them on every play. And even then, when they if they didn't send somebody over there to double or chip them, they were getting through and and putting a ton of pressure on Fitzgerald. Now, I thought the defense played good in the first half and then they were crazy dominant in the second half 43 yards what did we do in the second half to adjust to what they were doing
1: so there were two things that happened one the first drive Mississippi State had where they just moved the ball right down the field run 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 get the 25 yard line was almost entirely predicated on the fact that Rashad Jackson came into the game for David Reese and as we've said all along you cannot underestimate the importance of David Reese being in the game, especially when the guy replacing him, Rashad Jackson should never be playing a single snap in the sec. That's not offensive to Rashad Jackson. It's just a fact when it comes to talent. So what happened at the 25 yard line, David Reese comes in, they promptly go three plays in a field goal. That was the last time Rashad Jackson saw the field for the rest of the game for good reason. So the combination of Voshan and Reese in and of itself was solid, but most importantly, the next drive Mississippi state as they still drove the ball down the field, running the ball. After that drive, and especially after halftime, we made a small change. We made a very small change. So for the first half of the game, we were running our traditional three-four set where we have three linemen that are down in their stance with leverage. And we have the fourth guy standing up, typically polite, sometimes Uniga, whatever the case is. You see three guys in the line and one dude standing up. The change we made was to put all four of those guys down. So we're a multiple defense. which means we can run both a 3-4 and a 4-3, if you will. And the primary difference when you're playing the nickel, where we have just two linebackers, is really that you're either going to put a fourth guy in, a fourth D lineman in, instead of a linebacker, uh, and you're going to keep his hand on the ground. So everything we did was very, very football sound against a team that wants to run the ball. And just allowing a guy like Polite or Zuniga or CC Jefferson to have his hand on the ground allowed him to push that offensive tackle back. And that made a huge difference in the run game in the second half, an absolutely game-changing difference, so much so that we basically stayed with it almost every snap of the second half. Mine is very obvious, like screen situations or third-down situations, and it worked really, really well for us. This is something that you've seen Bama do throughout the years. I've talked about this very podcast, Bama running five defensive linemen in when they're a 3-4 defense by taking out two linebackers or stop running teams like Vanderbilt. This is the first time we've started to see something under this 3-4 that's happened. All year long, we'd be content to play three down linemen and, a, run, and a, a linebacker. We didn't. You didn't see Jeremiah Moon in this game at all. And that's not because he didn't deserve playing. It's because we wanted four bigger bodies there to stop the run. So I thought schematically that was excellent. In the second half, we held them to an absurdly low third down percentage. For the game, they got 16% of their third downs, which is amazing at any time, but especially on the road. And so I think a combination of David Reese and our scheme uh, really
2: allowed that to happen if you're going to contrast this game with Kentucky, they murdered us on third down, but it's often that they were in a down and distance where they could dictate what they wanted to do. They could run or pass. And often with Mississippi state is they were in a bad down distance where we could tee off a little bit. And we did a good job of keeping Fitzgerald, you know, I won't say in the pocket, but closed off his rushing lanes while still putting pressure on him, which is difficult to do. So sending the right blitzes, Keeping the right personnel in there. That was an impressive effort. Okay, a guy we've talked about a lot for someone who's not played until this weekend was Sean Davis. You know, we talked about the safety play being, you know, problematic at moments for this team. What were your thoughts on his performance in his debut?
1: I thought he was fantastic. He immediately showed up. He pops all over film. I thought the way we utilized him was brilliant. We almost exclusively employed him in obvious passing situations which he's a much much better cover guy than for example a brad stewart has proven to be brad stewart's proving to be by the way an excellent run stopping blitzer fantastic so while we continue to kind of pick on him at times for for some of his positioning he's improving week to week but i think that sean davis he was recruited to be that kind of safety a guy that can really cover people, that can come downhill, make an impact. In Free the game. safety,
2: more like a corner than a linebacker.
1: Correct. Yeah, not a guy that's going to hit you like a, like a Brad Stewart, but a guy that's going to really make those plays. And you know, we have been missing that tremendously for a while now. I mean, really, since probably Keanu Neal, we've been missing a guy that can that can cover people. And I thought Sean Davis was blanketing people out there. So I'm sure the coaching staff is thrilled to have him back. He stayed healthy by all accounts. Uh, look for him to get employed more. I do not expect them to change from the sort of safety by committee. I think they're going to continue to do it tactically based on what they want to do. And I have no problem with that, uh, especially because I think, like we said, you'll see more and more of Sean Davis against teams that traditionally want to pass it on certain downs because he is our best cover safety. Uh, but great to see him out there. We highlighted him in the preseason. We said we need him. He's our most talented on paper safety. And I think he looked he looked the part
2: on Saturday. Yeah, what else did you notice from the secondary?
1: So we obviously had Edwards and McWilliams having to play at corner. I'm surprised. Traydean being gone. Yeah, Yeah. I'm surprised with Dean being gone, which we're going to talk about in the special teams category. But I'm surprised Mississippi State did not attempt to abuse that. They probably could have run that comeback route anytime they wanted on either one of them. It was wide open all day long. Questionable play calling there not to kill that. On the flip side, you can see that nobody throws the ball at Henderson. I think, Why one, would you? I think one pass went towards him all day long. And you can imagine, Alan, what this defense would have been like if we also had Marco Wilson. Then there's really nowhere to go. And that would have been a lot of fun, but this illustrates what we talked about. Really good football teams have a really good two D roster. We're not quite there yet. And obviously that's going to be something for the rest of the season that will affect us. It's not that that Edwards and McWilliams are terrible. They're they're probably guys that should be maybe third on your depth chart in the SEC playing corner. They're not, they're not top level. They're probably not even mid level. They're a little behind that. They can function, they can get it done. Only a good team can really pick on them. But they didn't do anything horrible. They were fine. They were fine. But they were certainly the spot-on defense you could see that was the weakest when it came to attacking us. And, again, surprising they didn't go after them more. Yeah,
2: I don't know if – that's interesting to me because I would have thought that that would have been circled on their, I don't know, play sheet. Maybe they have more respect for Trey Dean and they just never adjusted once he went out of the game. You know, those guys, like I said, they're solid, but they're not going to make a lot of plays for you. you. can't pick on. You can pick up easy yards because they're not going to play in – a position that's going to try to deny the receiver the ball as much as you would trust with someone like Wilson or Henderson. So, yeah, something to look forward to as we – not look forward to, to look out for as we move forward. I don't want to look forward to people throwing on them. But, yes, Mississippi State, for whatever reason, not able to take advantage of it. Let's talk about special teams. We already mentioned Trey Dean being ejected on, like, basically the first play of the game. So Trey Dean gets ejected.
1: For something that I think is is ridiculous. If that's targeting... I'm sorry. The ball's on the ground. He's coming in and he dives, which you're trained to do, onto the fumble ball. Maybe he's a second too late. Maybe you want to even call it late hit, which I, I still think would be garbage. The targeting is... That is ridiculous. He's on The guy's on the ground. You know, he's diving to get the football. I understand the rule. I understand that if your helmet hits a helmet and there's some sort of intent, which I'm sorry... I don't see how there's
2: It any wasn't intent. especially a violent oh. play either. And there's
1: no intent on that. I think that's crazy. But, you know, it shows how much that kind of stuff can affect the game. You did not have to worry about that stuff, Alan, several years ago. But now you have to worry about the fact that that's your, that's your other starting corner and you get real thin after that out for something so dumb. So, interesting situation there. As a last note on defense, I want to talk really quickly about the very last play of the game. It also illustrates something I'm sure that is driving Joe Moorhead crazy. So we, in fact, decide to blitz eight people, leaving only three people in coverage against a Mississippi State formation that has four guys going out. Now, you can do the math, Alan. Someone (laughs) is obviously not covered. It looks to me on film that Brad Stewart actually messed this up and that he was, in fact, supposed to cover the slot. Why, Voshan blitzed, and he didn't. I think he blew his assignment. We talked about it a lot. Hopefully, Sages don't blow their assignments and it won't bite us. And thankfully, Nick Fitzgerald never looked that way. He never looked that way. Uh, Again, inexperienced as a passer. He was looking left when in reality he should have always been looking right. That's where the blitz is coming from. But long story short there, what frustrates some people about Grantham, keep an eye on it as the season goes on, is that he will bring the house, which is awesome when it gets home. But imagine that situation where they throw it to a wide open slot receiver for a touchdown and and you get tied up in the game. How do you feel then? Do I dislike the play? No, I like the aggressiveness. But it's... Good that it worked because I think there's a good merit that Brad Stewart probably
2: messed up at the summit there and that really could have cranked us. So, yeah, you saw the good and the bad of Grantham in that moment or the potential for it. And that was interesting, the way they played against him 68 overall. Is you, know, you talked about this previously, is you need to limit them or limit their explosive plays. So that They're not going to be able to execute all the way down the field. Now, Grantham is much more of a boom-bust guy. He's going to pressure you and you're going to win or lose on that. But he stayed disciplined for most of the game and and made Mississippi State execute, and they couldn't. And I'll give him credit for going against tendency for himself there. Even at the end, he <laughs> brought the house, and it worked, which is nice. And
1: it was awesome. Again, sometimes Remember, most
2: memorable play of the game if it works. Yeah, and sometimes under game theory, which
1: we'll cover in a different episode as we get further into the season. But you want to use what's called an exploitative strategy. The meta strategy is not to always blitz eight guys on fourth and game, but. Occasionally, it is the right strategy to do something that could even be regarded as stupid.
2: Especially if you don't think he's going to pick it up. Correct.
1: could be regarded as stupid, depending on your opponent. Would you do that to Tom Brady? No, you would not. Do you do it to Nick Fitzgerald? Yeah, you win the game. And so again, I I like that. That illustrates, I think, an understanding. But the frustrating point about Grantham Allen is that he doesn't always utilize game theory correctly, so to speak. Sometimes he just loves to blitz. So far this season, he's been very good at applying those. All right, special teams. Defense has been vastly improved. Special teams has been incredibly improved. Much improved unit from last year. A couple of good notes here. One, you may have noticed on the sideline that both teams jump up and down when they're on kickoff and whatnot, which is a legacy of Dan Mullen. Obviously, it's kind of funny to watch that. Secondly, Tommy Townsend is a savant at short field punts. That end-over-end punt where we're receiving and catching underneath is NFL-worthy. Uh, very few college guys are capable of that. That's kind of become his specialty, and I think
2: you see us utilizing it a lot. Yeah, put Mississippi State into a lot of bad positions where they had to drive the length of the field, which is what Kentucky did to them, too. And they're just not capable of that at this point. And so really smart to yeah, utilize that weapon that we have in our arsenal in Tommy Townsend. So good job for Townsend Jr.
1: We ran a punt safe for almost every single punt in the second half, which is one of those things you don't notice as a fan until they get you on it and you notice it. But good coaching. We were ready. We were not going to allow them to steal a free play or points on a fake punt. Love that. thought that was very wise. And then lastly, McPherson Allen continues to be incredible. The guy's a true freshman. He's kicking in very difficult situations in close games. And I think by both of our accounts, he's 100% of the season. He 100% got is correctly he officiated got kicks, yes. Yes, he got robbed. So excellent job. Excellent job by him. And that's going to lead to a, a coaching decision here in a second. He's done so well, that I want to ask you about. So let's do a little coaching decision corner. We have not had a chance to do this all season long. We have not had that many interesting decisions to debate. This game gave us three of them. I will start with the first one with 50 seconds left in the first half. We sack Nick Fitzgerald. Nick Fitzgerald is third down and forever on their own 14 yard line or so. We choose not to call a timeout, although we have three of them. Let the clock bleed all the way down to where they run one more play and the half is over. Would you like to have seen us call a timeout there and get the ball back potentially 40 seconds left with maybe a short field to go?
2: Now I'm generally in favor of aggressiveness and you'll hear me talk about this in our next scenario. I'm fine with those end of pass situations, especially if you don't feel like you have a quarterback who's going to be able to move you up the field quickly in the types of situations that that requires all the time. You know, again, on the road, I would generally prefer aggressiveness. But in that situation, I was okay with it. I don't I, I hate when coaches coach mostly out of fear, but I don't know in this situation that it was so obvious that we should have gone for it. I think you probably disagree with me.
1: Yeah, I definitely disagree with you, uh, but you have merit with your backing. If there's ever a time to consider being conservative, it's when you fear your quarterback doing something dumb, and I think that's definitely what goes on. However, to me, it's very hard, like you just said, Alan, to to like instill sort of a fearful mentality in your team and get the results you want. You can preach all week about how the defense has to be aggressive and the offense has got to put the pedal to the metal and put the forefront down and be the aggressor. And then you you display to them that when you get a chance to get the ball back with a short field, with the kicker that's really good to get points in a game that points are premium, you give that up, I don't like it. I think that when you earn field position in a low-scoring game on the road, uh, you pressure that and you take a chance to block a punt or return a kick or do whatever you could do. You can still be conservative if they hammer a punt off on you and you simply get on your own 30-yard line, take a knee then. That's fine. But I think you want to give yourself a chance there. I think we left the chance on the table. All right, secondly, and this one, also bizarre. 11 minutes left in the fourth quarter. At this point in time, we're winning 10-6. to six. Fourth and seven from the Mississippi State 34. We choose to punt. Now, we pinned them deep, but we choose to punt. Now, obviously, the defense at this point in time, Allen had been lights out. You can see the merit for why they did it. But why not kick a field goal here? To put yourself up thirteen to six, especially if your defense is playing so well. Are you worried about a short field there? Are you worried about the square? I mean, what, what's the thought process here?
2: I would have rather done either. I would have kicked a field goal if you felt like McPherson was gonna do it, or go for it. I hate punting in plus territory. And on the thirty-four yard line, the odds are actually higher, you know, that you're gonna they're gonna get the ball at the twenty and you've gained fourteen yards of field position now. Again, he's utilizing that weapon of Townsend's been pretty good or excellent at downing those punts, and he did at that time. I just think when you're in that close of a game, put the pedal to the metal a little bit. I think you can pull something out of your bag to pick up a first down there. And if you don't, your defense is still in a good position. You're still playing the field position game, mostly, I don't I didn't. I don't like that stuff at all. I, I mostly want to go for it when you're in plus position. I, I hate punting in that scenario. Yeah, very interesting one
1: here for me. And like you mentioned, Tommy Townsend directly factors in, as does the fact that you have a four-point lead and not a three-point lead. If you have a three-point lead, you might be more inclined to punting this ball because the other team only has to go 30 or so yards to get a shot on you. Whereas to score a touchdown, I feel a lot more comfortable kicking a field goal here, which would be huge to make that field goal to go up seven or, or going it If you want to be more aggressive, in which case if you don't get it, it's the same situation. They still have to drive the entire field and score a touchdown on you. There's probably more of a momentum shift if you go for it and don't get it. But I think in either scenario, missed field goal, missed conversion it's not a significant momentum shift. It's understood, I think, by both the players and even really the fans that that's something that you kind of logically do. So punting wound up working out. I I, I think it's the less optimal way to go. I, I Mathematically, it definitely is. As you mentioned, if we study this, absolutely you should not do that. Ebb and flow of the game-wise, on the road, putting pressure on them, letting your defense win it. I understand all those things. I don't hate that. You could argue that's an exploitative strategy there. But I didn't hate it. It
2: just... I prefer the other side of that tactical tree.
1: Correct. I think, to me, you kick the field goal. I think McPherson's proven that for 52 yards, he's got plenty of leg. He's very accurate. You probably have a, at least a 50% chance of making that kick if he's in that realm. And, and I think a coin flip risk there of going up seven is probably worth it versus getting nothing. Uh, but solid there. Lastly, and this one might be the most confusing to some people, and this is the most interesting one to me. Eight minutes left now. We have the ball. Fourth and one. We're up 10 to six on about the 25-yard line. We
2: go for it. Thoughts on that one? Well, you know me. I'm almost always in favor of going for it here. Now, you would say that we're going to kick a field goal and go up seven here. I understand that philosophy, but points were at a a premium, and I thought we could close the door on them if we scored. If we go up 17-6, to that probably ices the game, where if you kick a field goal, you're still within a weird play of getting caught and tied. I fourth and one, I almost always going to want to go for it in plus territory, but that's just how I would operate as a coach.
1: So this one is really fascinating to me because I don't think that you can definitively say what to do here. Like you can on some other ones. There is the knockout punch element, which you mentioned. Certainly if we got the fourth down, which we did barely miraculously, even if you'll argue, Mm -hmm. we can score and the game is definitively over. So I like knockout punch opportunities. Secondly, and the counter to that is, if you've been watching the entire game, it was very unlikely that we were going to score a touchdown there. Like, still a percentage chance of doing it, but unlikely. Third, if you don't get that, that does become a massive momentum shift. Ginormous. Because that you go from being up seven, which is safe. You cannot lose in that scenario. You can tie, but you cannot lose momentum-wise. You're comfortable. You feel good. But you put yourself in a scenario where now if you do not get that, you can outright lose on one play. And so to me, I'm kicking the field goal there. And I think anyone that's listening to this this podcast knows I am wildly in favor of aggression all the time, especially on short four, fourth downs. But this particular team has not necessarily proven to me that we're great in short yard situations either. You've got Jordan Scarlett, who's not the biggest guy, in an empty set like he's Tim Tebow. Going up against a a better defensive line than our offensive line is. I don't love those odds either. It worked out. I prefer aggression to no aggression. But interesting, interesting there that you don't just take the field goal, which you wound up taking, wind up winning us the game. You risk potentially not getting that. So for what it's worth, some good coaching decision stuff to get into. Uh, certainly nothing here that I think Alan and I would would say, wow, that was egregiously bad, like we've seen before. These are more philosophical discussions on how you might want to coach a team. Uh, and obviously we got the win, so all of them in retrospect worked out. I think mathematically we could all agree that there's better ways to go mathematically. But sometimes, like we said, you do want to be exploitative based upon the game, how things are going, the atmosphere. There's nothing wrong with countering a meta strategy, if you will. A couple of bright spots in this game, Alan, that we have not focused on, that we will focus on before we have any kind of final thoughts. I know there's one you're itching to mention. I'm going to let you just just bring it out
2: I love this. Forth? I love this. I love these deep roster tight ends. So Kyle Pitts is a guy who's not really played. And the announcer said that he's dressed every week. I'll take his word for that. They throwed him on a huge third down. Hit a one-on matchup with a corner who is obviously bigger than. He makes a great catch in traffic. I was shocked. At first I was like, that was really dumb. But it worked, so I guess it was great. I don't know how to feel about it. But that was fantastic for this kid to come in and get a grab on a huge leverage situation in a close game on the road. And hopefully that shows up a lot more because he's a guy, a very big time recruit for a tight end. Looks like he can make a difference in the passing game. So there's some, you know, we talked about Kroll. We talked about Gamble. We talked about Pitts now that maybe by the end of the season, we'll see some of these tight ends starting to make more of a difference for us. What about you?
1: C.C. Jefferson had his best game this season in this game. He was really, really fantastic. Caused a lot of headache and havoc for their team. Once again, Pierce, obviously on offense, uh, really, really excellent. Super happy that he did not stick with his commitment to Alabama. And, of course, our weekly bright spot, Polite, was, was an absolute baller yet again. And then Grimes. Grimes is really good. I think that we need to get him the ball more. I mean, he's consistent to get a ton of yak every single week. And I think the coaching staff needs to find ways to get him in there more. He's been extremely productive. As a last note, kind of a slight disappearance for Van Jefferson. Not his fault. This is not his fault. Cleveland has been entirely absent. And here's what you're seeing. Dan Mullen, much to James's chagrin, me, I hate this about Dan Mullen, is not a big play guy. He's going to try maybe two or three times a game. That is it. That's what he does. Your biggest play threats Cleveland. On different teams, Cleveland is shredding people. On this team, he's gone. I'm sure it frustrates him. I can assure you he's not happy, even though we're winning. I can assure you he's not loving the situation. However, I also think this season, Alan, that even me, if I'm offensive coordinator, I don't know how much downfield shot taking you can make with Felipe Franks. That requires you reading something. So I will say that. But all in all, bright spots here, especially... Grimes in this offense seems to be a guy that could that could really help us. He's got a, a like
2: a poor man's Percy Harvin like burst. Well, the good thing is we come to this podcast every week and say we should get this guy the ball more, and we could be talking about five or six different guys. That's a luxury that we haven't had in the past, where we're basically relying on one or two guys, and if they don't come through, it's like oh, I don't know who we're gonna throw it to here on this third down. So great. For the coaches that they're developing, these guys, we thought Grimes and Jefferson would be big for this team as transfers, and they have been. Okay, some final thoughts on this game before we turn to look at some of the national scene and look ahead to next week. James, you aggressively bought Joe Moorhead's stock in the offseason, and it started to spike. They were predicted to be a top-10 team, to win 10, 11 games, for him to capitalize on Dan Mullen's success there. Let me ask, do you want to sell any of your Joe Moorhead stock at this moment? This is a great question
1: because the professional investor me says I bought Joe Moorhead like beginning of of last season. And so I would have crushed it and I would have sold it and waited. And here's why. But I'm going to answer your question to how you're asking me in a second. You'd sell it and wait because I have a three year rule. With which it's going to tell me whether or not the coach is going to pan out year one is rarely indicative of what's going to happen unless maybe you got a willie taggart situation but you really need to wait the full three years it's extremely unlikely that any coach becomes an elite coach as we know so i think you take you take the run-up that he had fever pitch run-up gets a big job maybe not qualified for that if you look at it and you cash out right but the question now is given what i've seen this season and am i still as high on him the jury is out, but my answer is still, I want to lean towards yes, and not because I'm bunkering myself in. I think that, that he, this is a question coming in a second, I think he showed some weaknesses in both of these games against Kentucky and us, and we'll talk about those in just a minute. He has the absolute wrong quarterback for his system, and we have talked about this. And so on the Mississippi State message boards, it is a very popular topic of discussion, would Dan Mullen have beaten the skater team? And the answer is an emphatic yes. I totally agree with that, by the way. If he was coaching the Mississippi State team, he would have. But that is a team that Dan Mullen specifically built for his own style. And Joe Moorhead and Dan Mullen, philosophically, are very different. Even if they both run options, uh, you know, spread offenses that involve a running quarterback, they could not be more different in how they want to attack you. I think Joe Moorhead has done a poor job of managing Nick Fitzgerald. I actually think you could see on Nick Fitzgerald's body language during the game that he is borderline defeated right now. doesn't look confident. He's not getting coached up. All the times you see Dan Mullen kind of walk over and and put his arm around Felipe and talk him through, you do not see that with Joe Moorhead. I think Joe Moorhead is is very arrogant. Came in and thought he was going to really dominate, and he's not. He's catching a lot of heat right now. I don't want to sell all of it. I'm probably hedging it and selling some. But all in all, he needs three years. He needs to get his quarterback and his guys in. This is the most quote-unquote talented Mississippi State team that they have had. But he lost to a Florida team that on paper is equally as talented Mississippi State and in positions better. He lost to a Kentucky team that's obviously very good. So should he have beaten us? Maybe, yeah. But I think if you look at it that way, he hasn't done anything egregious yet. The problem for him is his schedule is brutal. It's very possible he only win seven games this year. That's going to not sit well with them. But I think the jury's still out. I'm not confident saying that, yeah, dump him. He's going to suck like a lot of Mississippi State fans are. But certainly he's not having a debut he wanted.
2: So here's the problem if you're a Mississippi State fan, that this was supposed to be the team where you capitalize. This is the cycle. So Dan Mullen leaving last year was actually interesting timing for him. He probably wanted to leave a year before that or two years before that. He had cycled this team up. And the thought was, that, as I said, Joe Moorhead's going to come in and capitalize on this talent and experience. And he's going to take him to maybe even another level because look how good he did at Penn State with some similar type of strategy. Now, as you said, there's some significant differences between their offensive philosophy. I mean, you would assume that they're going to take a step back next year as they lose some of these guys like Simmons and Sweat and some of their corners. I don't know. And then it becomes harder because then you're not trying to take Mississippi State and like stand on the shoulders of Dan Mullen, you're trying to rebuild and reestablish at a place like Mississippi State, which is really difficult to do. You see Dan Mullen's stats there. He's the second winningest coach of all time. It was probably their best run ever with him. You don't just snap your fingers and do that. And so the fact that he's not going to take those pieces and move them forward probably opens the questions of can he do this at all at this particular place? I have way more questions about that now. And I wasn't someone who was buying in. I was like, I don't know, man. That seems like a lot to ask of a first time FBS coach. He might still do it, but I don't know. I still love the hire in theory. I think it was a fantastic hire. Everyone said so, but not even a fantastic hire in paper doesn't always work out.
1: And I think that's the important thing to recognize as a final note on, on whether or not I'm selling stock. The reason you hire a guy is because he could have a really high ceiling. You have no idea if these guys are going to pan out. Maybe outside Mullen. Mullen is the sure thing. I've gotten so many messages about, aren't we happy we have Mullen? Yes, look, everyone, nobody would have debated that Mullen was the most ready to have a competent team. The debate will still rage on about winning championships. Uh, and I'm not saying Moorhead has a better chance than Mullen did. But if you are Mississippi State, Moorhead represented a swing for the fence. And I think that's a good swing. Imagine Moorhead with a quarterback, Alan. This is an undefeated Mississippi State team. I have no doubt about that. They beat Kentucky and they beat us. I think the difference is he's not managing Nick Fitzgerald well at all. And and you could argue Nick Fitzgerald might be the worst possible quarterback for Joe Moorhead. He way more leans towards a smart, cerebral distributor of the ball passing-wise than running. Trace McSorley happened to be such a good runner that he utilized in there. But is a very smart distributor. Fitzgerald, no offense, I'm not saying the guy's dumb, but football-wise is just not capable of being that kind of point guard, and it's killing them right now. It's killing them. So I want to ask you this because I've done a lot of talking. Do you think Mullen outcoached Moorhead? Which maybe the obvious answer to that is yes. But does that concern you with, like, the future of Moorhead's coaching ability? Is it like, oh, man, I don't think he's going to be able to, you know, consistently coach with the best minds.
2: I'd say yes. I don't think he took advantage of his prime pieces and where, where his talent lies. And I think that belies like an overall kind of meta a deficiency potentially with him. Yes, clearly Mullen outcoached him. And like you said, I don't think, it's not that Florida's less talented, so it's not an upset necessarily in that particular avenue. But I didn't watch that game and be like, Oh, man, Moorhead's really pulling out all the stops or he's got them ready to go. feels like they underperformed. They should have won that game with the way it's set up, both narrative-wise, talent-wise, experience-wise, matchup-wise. They never countered anything we were doing. In fact, it got worse as the game went on as we made adjustments. They never made any adjustments. They made they, maybe they, if they made adjustments, they were adjustments to worse things. He pretty much abandoned the run in certain segments of the game, which why you would do that with their running backs and Nick Fitzgerald, I'm not sure. So, yes, a clear win in the coaching battle in my eyes.
1: I think that's true on both sides of the ball. Bob Shoop, the much maligned coordinator we talked about last week, I think was not prepared for what Dan Mullen did. LSU will be far more prepared this week. We will really see what things are made of. I think there were simple things they could have done with their talent on defense to make life a lot harder for us chosen to do it on the offensive side. I think that's a game where the inexperience of Joe Moorhead shows up versus the experience of Dan Mullen. I think Joe Moorhead really believes in his coaching magic and he kind of thinks he can force Nick Fitzgerald into the box. He wants him to be to throw balls and be competent and he can't. He should be more like Kentucky and just run the ball 75 times a game. Because you just can't make Nick Fitzgerald something he's not. Especially not in one season with a whole new system. He can't do it. Now, I know if you read articles on Morehead, he's convinced he can do it. Because he kind of hasn't done it everywhere. But I think he reached a guy in Fitzgerald where he can't do it. And he's he's up against much more difficult competition than what you face in the media, darling Big Ten, as well. With these athletes on defense in the SEC. So, definitely outcoached him. I think that's what a coach who's been around for a long time should do, by the way. So, does it concern me for the future? no. Because you would expect Moorhead to learn. That's the key. The good ones learn. Now, Will Muschamp, Alan, this many years down the road, getting abused by Kentucky, a lot of concern there. I think it's very clear that he consistently gets outcoached, and that's a problem. Moorhead, concerning, not definitive yet. All right, revising our expectations downward after Kentucky was exactly what we did. In fact, you were like in depression zone. We lost, and you're thinking this is over. I'm down. I'm coming down to seven wins with me. Down there at seven wins. Maybe six wins. I remain unchanged at seven. Do you want to revise them again in a different direction now?
2: Yes. Well, you know, after that Kentucky game, I think everything opened up. Could we lose to Colorado State? Could we lose to Tennessee? We've banked two more wins that at that moment I wasn't sure, and, and I, I think most people almost universally picked us to lose to Mississippi State. I think the trajectory is much closer to eight than it is six, obviously, at this point in the year. So, yes, I think I revised them much higher. And then I think nine wins becomes an option again. Before, after the Kentucky game, the the way we were reading the tea leaves felt like six. Could we get bowl eligible? Six wins is good. Maybe seven would be awesome. And now I think we're trending back up again.
1: I would revise mine to eight, seven to eight. And that's almost exclusively because of Florida State. If, okay. To me, I'm I, to me, we're still right where we are. The Mississippi State game we talked about before the year was a question of where they were, and I think coming to this game, although we both picked us to lose, uh, we saw ways we could win. We were no longer like super afraid of this game, uh, and I think that's good. That's where we should be. But Florida State to me was a very talented team that I figured even with some problems would still be good, and they are a absolute dumpster fire. So if you look at Idaho win, Florida State win, Vanderbilt win. That's hmm. seven. All you have to do is beat a couple coin flip games to get to eight and you get to nine. You can build an narrative to get to nine easily. You could build an narrative to get to 10. If you're JT Raymond, 11, 12, who knows national championship JT out there probably already doing that, but I'm at eight. And again, that's exclusively because of Florida state. I feel great after this win, but I don't necessarily feel different. I still feel like a Missouri team probably has a leg up on us. We'll see LSU this week. Probably has a leg up on us. We'll see all games. We can win. Like we said, all games that we can win, George is the only game where I think we still have really no shot of winning. But revising upwards after this win. If we proved we could win on the road against a competent team in a close game, that means something.
2: I think the way we lost against Kentucky felt most disconcerting. The fact that we got smashed in the face and didn't seem like we had any answers. And all of our potential deficiencies were glaring. Now, we're going to talk about Kentucky. They've got a big game this week against Texas A&M. They, this could be a 10-win season for them. Especially if you look at the back half of their schedule, so I don't know. Yeah, with that in mind, yeah, I, I want to revise it up. Or we'll, but we have more information, and I should revise as you get more data. Okay, James, we got a ton of texts and messages about this particular situation. Two notable either transfers or potential transfers in Kelly Bryant and Jalen Hurts. High profile. Quarterbacks, that big running the ball, have gotten replaced. But our excellent athletes, runners of the ball, would we want them? Would Dan Mullen want them? Would they fit UF? Or would they be interested in coming here?
1: Let's start with Kelly Bryant. Because Kelly Bryant only has one year of eligibility remaining. Just one. When do you want... A one-year rental player so to speak in the pro marketplace okay you want that if your team is already extremely sound and capable of winning a championship of some sort so you'll say fine i'll take the risk of having a one-year rental player if my quarterback spot's not there maybe you're also in a transition where you don't naturally have a guy that can play quarterback and you say let me get my young guy some experience behind an experienced guy and elevate the team to a couple of other wins really no risk there We seem to be in a very interesting spot for a a Kelly Bryant situation. Emery Jones, by all accounts, is way behind. So you could start to begin to wonder about him ever playing at this stage. And that's too soon to say that. But the question is fair to be raised. Trask was never going to be a fit. He was a guy that maybe beats out Franks, and Franks isn't a fit either. Question is, what do we do next year? We could be a candidate for that intermediate case where you say okay you come in for one year frank's if you don't think he's really getting that much better which so far he hasn't you bring in a guy like kelly bryant who by the way alan is not necessarily a great reader of the football field either so you're you're encountering a similar problem he's a much better runner does he give you one more win maybe is it worth the headache i don't think so
2: if you think that you're potentially everything else on the field is peaking say you were out on emory jones you don't want to insert a freshman onto a championship level team unless you're Clemson, I guess. So yeah, we wouldn't seem. And also that says to your quarterback room, nobody in here's got it immediately. Emery Jones probably transfers at that point. It's not a good look. You, it can be done, but it's not a good look. Yeah, not not the
1: right fit, I think, for us. I think again, there's situations where that does work. If you look back when we picked up Appleby, if Bryant was available then.
2: That works. There are different players and different expectations. Appleby yeah. was just looking for a potential upgrade and a chance to start. He's not; it wasn't right. the same profile as Brian. Right,
1: but the the team chemistry it still worked with the team. Like picking sure. up a one year guy worked in that regard. We were kind of in a in a weird limboy state where we didn't really have a quarterback on the roster, not even one you wanted to develop per se that was ready to play that year. I think next year, obviously, we're not in that situation. So then the Jalen Hurts question. I'm going I'm to say no to Kelly Bryant. I don't see narratives. I think he would want to come here. Yes. Because Dan Mullins had a lot of success coaching guys like him. I think we'd be on a top three or four list for him. I don't think we're going to look at him. Hurts, to me, more compelling. Here's why. One, he has two years of eligibility until Nick Saban nuked it. and he So now he only has one.
2: He only has one. Could he have played immediately as well as a graduate?
1: So here's, yeah, could have played immediately. A lot of good things there, but that's lit on fire. So Hurts with two, I'll start there. Hurts with two? Yes. Do I like Hurts? No, because he can't throw the ball. Does Dan Mullen like Hurts? Oh, you better believe he likes Hurts. That guy can run the ball perfectly, and he's very smart and does not turn it over. I can assure you, Mullen would can't have liked Can't throw
2: the ball, but
1: not again, not a reader of the field. Not a reader of the field, but Dan Mullen likes those guys. So I think if Hertz had two years, we would have been all over him. We're in the same problem with Hertz again here that we just illustrated, which is why we started with Bryant. I don't think we'd go after him either because we're in the same situation it's going to be a one-year deal it's not going to be a good deal for us i don't know that franks is going to improve a ton he could there's still a chance he could do that and look like it but like you mentioned what what are you doing next year we're not going to win a championship next year does Hertz make you compete for the sec east next year i think only if you're like living a pipe dream and you think georgia all of a sudden falls off a map somewhere I don't love it. I think a lot of fans would want it because it's like splashing into name and it's a guy who's won. But I think both Hurts and Kelly Bryant, for what it's worth, Allen, are products of excellent football teams, more so than they are transcendent quarterbacks. And that's maybe the biggest and most important thing to know. You are not getting Cam Newton. You are not getting Tim Tebow. You are not getting that kind of guy that's going to take your team from mediocre to amazing. So for me, I'm out on both of them. I don't see either of them coming here. In fact, I don't really even see
2: Mullen pursuing them at any level. What are your thoughts? I would think so, too, unless something happens to either Franks or Emory Jones where it changes your quarterback room numbers. And we want to revisit this question maybe at the end of the year. Um, but as it as it stands right now, I don't think it's a great move. Although, you know, you, you can never really have too many quarterbacks if you don't have any, try some guys out. But I wouldn't be in favor of it as, at this moment. I don't know that it would improve it that much over what you're getting from Franks in a second year in that system. Okay, James, look at the national games. FSU squeaks one out against Louisville. So FSU 28, Louisville 24. It's amazing to me that Florida State won this game. They
1: were dead in the water. Louisville throws a pick with a minute and 40 seconds left with a lead for absolutely no reason. Then you get like a basic skinny post route that goes to the house. Game over. They lose. Uh, Florida State is, is, is just horrible. Louisville is horrible this year, too. But Louisville was, was better than Florida State on this day, and Florida State gets a win. So Florida State somehow putting together a couple of wins, although I think you can make the argument that this is where they're winning for them
2: maybe stops now. It was a big win because the rest of their schedule gets tougher and Louisville is a winnable game. And if they had lost that one, that had been tough. That would have been it, I think, for them
1: win-wise. Maybe one more they have on the schedule. So we'll see if they can get to four to equal our suckery
2: from last year. That'll be a fun, uh, fun thing to I think they might. Syracuse 23, Clemson 27. Incredible game. If you didn't know, this is the game after Kelly Bryant announced he was going to transfer. All-world freshman, Trevor Lawrence is in there. Gets hurt removed from the game. They're down to their, I guess, second string, third string, however you want to talk about them, quarterback, and Bryce. Gutty victory for them. They run the ball a ton. Fascinating game.
1: This is an amazing win for Clemson. I don't know what Dabo is doing in life, but he has got like a four leaf clover or he's got a rabbit's foot somewhere that's working for him because the mother of all scenarios occurs. It was talked about all week long on every radio show you could imagine what happens if Trevor Lawrence goes down. You've got a guy that's taken eight snaps. You take a championship team where if you had Kelly Bryant in the backup, you're safe. You've got insurance and you can't convince him to stay. So he's gone. Now you got nothing. And Syracuse, who we appropriately called as being a game team that was going to cover that monumental spread, which they did easily, winds up losing a game they probably should have won. But exemplary job by Clemson to manage that. Here at Florida, we can't seem to win with any quarterback in a big game. And yet Clemson, down to a guy who's taking no snaps, and they score a bunch of points with him. They scored
2: twice as many points as they scored with Trevor Lawrence. So good for them. They managed a really bad situation. All right, your boy, Will Greer. And his Mountaineers 42, Texas Tech 34.
1: That was my lock of the week at minus three and a half or minus four. Uh, So it wound up paying out. So, so far this season, very, very good. It was close though. Yeah, so far I think I'm like eight and one and one. But uh, who's bragging about their own record here? Not me, right? (laughs) But this game was 35 10 at halftime. And I'm thinking, Golden, this thing is over. Put it to bed. And then somehow it became a very cagey matchup near the end. West Virginia stopped scoring, Texas Tech kept scoring. Uh, but all in all, Alan, I think West Virginia is a real deal. I think they're the real deal. I think they're very, very good. I think it's it's time to say that when they were engaged in this game, they were annihilating Texas Tech. It's a good lesson for them to recognize not to let up like they did. I think they had a hard time finishing that game out uh, because Texas Tech didn't quit. But keep an eye on them; they could they could be real. They could actually be a legit top ten team. That defense seems to be improved. Tennessee 12, UGA 38, they do not cover that big number. This is a great result for Tennessee, and if you're a Georgia fan, maybe for the first time you're thinking, I'm a little bit concerned. Tennessee, Even with that big score, though. Yeah, you're fine. You're happy. But it didn't look particularly beautiful. 17 nothing at halftime, nothing to write home about. Again, they controlled the game, they dominated, and I think as the Georgia announcer put it best at the end of the game, Georgia fans have already gotten to the point where they they went from just like licking their wounds, losing to Florida all the time, kind of like hopeful but sad, to where they're already like mini Bama fans. And crushing Tennessee is like, well, that was good, but I don't know. And that's what Kirby Smart's already done there. He's raised the bar so high that I think that's the narrative of conversation. Again, they looked mortal. They looked very good. They're much better than anyone in the East. But maybe if you're looking at them compared to Bama and you're a Georgia fan, you're thinking, hmm, hard to pull off an upset if we
2: look like that. Sluggish is a good word. And it's hard to get college teams up every week. This is not a game that they're circling. They've got LSU coming up. They've got Auburn coming up. I could see definitely why there was a little malaise out there. Pitt, 14, UCF, 45. Pitt, who I didn't think was a real team, thought they might be. UFC crushes another one.
1: Yeah, well, we knew that Pitt was terrible. I mean,
2: I had said during the Penn State Pitt bet that the problem
1: with Pitt is they're awful. So Penn State will probably <laughs> that is
2: the problem with them.
1: probably do that, but either way, it doesn't matter. Pitt's still more of a real team than what UCF faces a lot, and the spread in this game was not that big. It was like fifteen, and UCF obliterated them. It's getting very hard, Alan, to ignore UCF.
2: I will continue to do so.
1: Yeah, it's going to be hard though. I think that they're legitimate. They're crushing everyone. At some point in time, I don't know how you keep them out of a, a legit playoff discussion if they meet everyone by forty-five points. I don't know. I don't know what you do. We're going to find out. I don't know. But two years in a row of all this winning, you have to wonder what Scott Frost is thinking in Nebraska as he's managing a full-on meltdown in Lincoln. He probably really hates the fact that he's in Nebraska at this point in time.
2: All right, game of the day, one of the games of the year, Ohio State 27, Penn State 26. How did Ohio State do it? This this was soul-crushing. Of course, I'm totally rooting against Ohio State in this game,
1: as is everyone else at our house. And Penn State finds another way to lose just an excruciatingly brutal game Capped off by Penn State running the ball on fourth and five. Fourth and five. That that was the
2: big narrative. That was the headline. Trace
1: McSorley. They run the ball. And again, they had a two-man number advantage there. They really did. So you can get crazy, but I don't care. It's five yards. What are you doing? That's, That's awful. It's terrible. I know the fans are getting on James Franklin. Penn State was better in this game. They should have won this game. They succumbed or succumbed to Ohio State's screen game. Late in the fourth quarter, Ohio State couldn't move the ball. And then all of a sudden, they started throwing screens, and and Penn State had no answer. It's like they'd never defended a screen before. Baffling, frustrating loss for Penn
2: State fan. Big, big win for Ohio State. That sets them up for a lot of success moving forward. I don't know that they're going to get challenged again until Michigan. BYU 7, Washington 35. Well, BYU's magic was just for one week, I guess.
1: Yeah, BYU, uh, you know, we talked about this. Washington didn't look so good. Washington looked a lot better in this game. And I think BYU... Their offense is anemic, and they just couldn't get anything going. So
2: Washington's still with plenty of question marks, but a, a trending up for them right now. Oregon doesn't let last week's collapse affect them too much. They beat Cal 42-24. Oregon is my team on the rise. They should have beaten
1: Stanford handily. They they crank a Cal team that's solid. That's a team to look out for. I think they could very well win If the numbers fall for them and they get fortunate, depending on what Stanford does, I think they're able to win the Pac-12. I think that they could be the... They're the dark horse right now. They look good.
2: Speaking of Stanford, they go down to the Golden Dome or 17 to 38. Notre Dame a different team with Book instead of Wimbush? Entirely. And again, don't sleep
1: on the fact that a quarterback is monumentally important in college football. It makes all of the difference. Notre Dame is a totally different offense. They're now a juggernaut, if you will, with him in there. Stanford, also the recipient of really horrible scheduling. We talked about that going into this game. Very, very hard to play basically an NFL schedule where you're playing three extremely good teams in a row. That's hard. That's hard. But Notre Dame is a much different team. I love to hate on Notre Dame. It's time you take them seriously. This is, by all accounts, a very good football team.
2: All right, let's get to the SEC roundup. James, some interesting results here that we'll have to take into account as we move forward. This one not so much. Louisiana fourteen, Alabama fifty six. Another just beat down.
1: I mean, Alabama's but Tua was like eight for eight for hundred and some odd yards, and it touched on or two. And he did, like first quarter, he leaves Yeesh. the game. I
2: mean, it's crazy. Arkansas seventeen, A and M twenty four. Closer than I thought that was going to be. A and M jumped out
1: to a seventeen nothing lead, and it looked like they were going to hammer them, and they did not. So a two good things here. Chad Morris is, in fact, more like we talked about, a coach that I think is going to improve Arkansas. I think he has not lost this team. They're obviously remaining competitive in games they could roll over and die in. And 2 AM just makes you question Clemson more at this point in time. That's what I take hmm. from this. a and wasn't supposed to be great this year. They're, they're doing good. I think everyone's excited about them. But I think the real question is
2: Clemson looks more and more fraudulent every single week. Very substandard performance here from the Auburn Tigers. They beat Southern Miss 24-13. I would love to have
1: Chris Musgrove on the pod for five minutes to discuss this one. The game took 55 years due to a weather delay and Auburn fans. I don't know. You signed Gus Malzahn to that massive contract and yet here you are again. Another year where the offensive output is is subpar. It's bad.
2: It's not good. Someone sent, uh, it was Chris, the, the aforementioned Chris Musgrove, who sent me a I had a screenshot of Stidham looking at the field, and there's three receivers open, but he doesn't throw to any of them. So I, I don't know. That, it's a perplexing situation out there on the Plains. They still have some time to get it together, though. Vandy escapes Tennessee State, 31-27.
1: Just when you think Vandy's like on the road, playing close against Notre Dame, doing well, they get blown out last week, and then almost lose the game to Tennessee State. So Vandy is in fact still Vandy and Derek Mason probably still wearing his life preserver jacket when the winter comes
2: around. A surprising score for me, although maybe not so much if I really think about it, USC South Carolina 10 Kentucky 24 Kentucky blazing a trail to greatness in this sec East.
1: This is what makes sports so good and doing this podcast. So fun preseason Dark horse to win the SEC East was South Carolina. That's the only team that could challenge Georgia. It was a question really of who else is going to be there. This is their year. And they now have gotten blasted by Georgia and hammered by Kentucky. Kentucky, on the other hand, like myself, game one, they struggle mightily. They returned a lot of starters in a defense that was awful. They didn't have a whole lot to compel you to believe they were going to be able to pass the ball at all, which they can't. And yet here they are undefeated with a lot of really good wins at this point in time. Good, consistent wins. They have not played a top team by all accounts yet, but you cannot deny them anymore. And that's why this is so much fun. Is is No one in their right mind was picking Kentucky to have done something significant this season.
2: Ole Miss, who some weeks elects not to play defense, 16, LSU 45, our featured matchup of the week, this game
1: was never close, but it was closer than the score indicated. So Old Miss was able to move the ball; they were able to complete some passes. But you just knew that they were never really going to threaten LSU because their defense is just too bad. They made Joe Burrow look like like he was, you know, really excellent in this game, and he's he's a smart quarterback. Uh, but he certainly had a lot of lot of easy throws here. So. That game to me is not that instructive for us. And I watched the film on it. We'll talk about it. There's other games they've played that are. But I think the narrative here is LSU's another team. I think Vegas Allen had them at six and a half wins this year. Six and a half, I believe is the number. Undefeated. Ranked number five. They only returned 10 guys, which we're going to talk about in a second. Hard to find a narrative with them being this good. But again, what did they do in the offseason? They got Joe Burrow. They got a quarterback who is a quarterback that is much better than anyone else they had on their roster. So it sets up for a most intriguing matchup. I'll set the table before I get into it. And I thank some patrons. I am so stoked for this because I did not think we were going to have a game in the swamp that was going to feel this way. We have a real game week against an opponent who we've built some bad blood with. We have lots of history with, played a lot of close games with. At home. And I'm stoked about it. I just kind of sold that out for this season. And now I'm like, okay, this is great. No matter what happens, we get to enjoy an SEC quality, high-level game, at least in build-up. And that should be fun. So before we get into that kind of stuff, Alan, let's thank some more patrons. Uh, love you guys. Thanks for donating, as always. We have Edwin Hernandez-Gunn. Michael Reeves. Ian McFetridge. This is... uh.
2: Etienne Gier Rosmond.
1: Etienne or yep. Yeah, that's good. I like that. It's like a French Creole name there. Then Garrett Pignotti, uh, Jack Linati, and then Elliot Parrish. And of course, if I butcher your name, please write me hate mail on Patreon. I'll get it right. Send me the shot sheet and the syllabus and I'll make sure that it's correct. If you too, love the show, you can hop onto Patreon, which is available at any of our links on Facebook, Twitter, etc. and in two minutes or less you can throw us a dono and we'll give you some love on the show.
2: Let's turn around and talk now about LSU, the Bayou Bengals. They are five and zero this season. Some big wins already against Auburn and Miami. Only a three point favorite against our Gators, though. And if you have been paying attention the last few years, the last five meetings between us have been decided by a touchdown or less. Although, unfortunately, of course, the Tigers are four and one in those contests. Coaching staff for LSU, Ed Orgeron, his second season. We talked a lot about him. Be interesting to see what he does this week. His preferred offensive coordinator, other than Matt Canada, this is his first season, although he's been on staff there for a while. Dave Aranda, his third season. He's been to a lot of places, Tennessee, Penn State, Vandy, well-respected. Only 10 returning starters, five on offense, five on defense. And over the last five years, recruiting ranking, LSU, predictably very high, sixth as us, 13th. So a little bit of a gap there. They've been recruiting at a high level, as always. All right, James, as you watch the film on them, tell us what you picked up first on offense.
1: So Steve Ensminger has been there since 2010, which is pretty impressive. You You go through the Les Miles staff, you go through Ed Orgeron, you go through Matt Canada getting fired. He's really always been a tight ends coach, minus what happened in 2016 when he served for the second half of the season and had good results. There was sort of a doomsday effect with the LSU fans when Ensminger got the job that they were going to go back to like 1930s football and it was going to be a disaster. That has actually not been the case. The offense they run is very traditional. It's a pro-style offense, mainly run, uh, less pass, 60% or so run, 40% pass, and it's heavily dependent upon play action. So this is what you kind of think of anyway when you think of LSU, minus all of the absurd toss plays that used to be run, under the short minus. toss, right. That's not there, but this is very much a Alabama pre Lane Kiffen style offense. Very classic, very traditional, yet it does mix some of the newer concepts in They'll run, plenty of spread sets. The quarterback Joe Burrow will run the ball eight to 10 times a game, and they'll even throw in a little bit of his own read. So it's definitely a multiple offense, but, but way more Allen of a pro style offense. Uh, they are a much better running team than passing team. They are opportunistic passing, and they will take shots deep, especially when they get one-on-one coverage. That's something that the teams we played this year have not really done. So that will be a new thing for us to see this weekend. Probably most importantly is that Joe Burrow has not thrown an interception yet. It's one of the reasons why they've been successful. Uh, His completion percentage is very similar to Felipe Franks in the 50% range, which is not good. But he has been a gamer, especially in the Auburn game. He loves to throw those vertical routes, and he loves to throw five-yard slant or in routes to the slots. That's their primary go-to route. I expect us to see this on film and to be ready for it and to challenge him to make other throws that he really has not yet put on film. Uh, they also attempt to run a heavy dose of screens, which you would expect from a pro-style offense. So how will we counter this? Well, in reality, on, we'll stick with our cover two nickel. Uh, Deep two safety, just like we do in almost every other game. We will not change our defense at all to address what's going with LSU. However, you might see us employ more of the four down lineman look on certain situations that we employed last week. A more traditional four down lineman front. If we feel pretty confident they're going to run to get some more beef in there. LSU wants to run the ball down your throat first and foremost. It's crucial that you stop that to make them one-dimensional. So look for a very similar game plan when it comes to stopping the run. How we stop their pass will be much different than what goes on against Mississippi State. Expect Chauncey Gardner to get a lot of work in this game. His matchup will be key with whoever he's flexed on in the nickel. They love to attack opposing teams' nickels. When you look at the Auburn tape, which is probably the best game to look at, Alan, where LSU really was able to come back in this game was limiting auburn on third down auburn could not convert on third down while lsu converted at an extremely high level as the game went on that's something they've continued to do is as the game goes on and the games are close they convert on third down and that's been a big success for us we struggled for a long time on third down we've had two games in a row we've done really well that's an important narrative to watch Uh, most important players on offense quarterback joe burrow their running back, Nick Brissett. And they also have a, uh, not Leonard Fournette, but Leonard Fournette, who's his younger brother. Exciting. Yeah, it's pretty fun. They all, all those kids are L names that sound like Leonard or Leonard. It's pretty fun. And lastly, their best receiver is Justin Jefferson. They only had five returning guys on offense. So there was not a lot of hope or hype for this offense coming into the season, but they have been productive. They are a middle of the road offense with an above average run game, below average pass game, that should sound kind of similar to our own offense. Uh, we're just a little bit less productive than they are, especially against some of the opponents they play. On defense, Alan, we've played against uh, a Dave uh, Arnada defense, which I always want to say Arnada, which is Aranda. So funny. Dave Arnada. But if you look at it, it looks like Arnada. Look at it, I promise. But uh, Aranda, it's right there in front of my face. We played against him three times. I say we, I mean Dan Mullen has played against him three times, and he's had some success. So if you look back at what he's done against him, He beat LSU 37-7 last year. Year before that, they lost 23-20. Year before that, they lost 21-19. So he's consistently played close games. I believe this is one reason why the spread on this game is what it is, is Vegas is expecting Dan Mullen to have some success against this defense. He's done it before. Uh, They are a 3-4 defense, and they primarily play a ton of man coverage. A ton of man coverage. So they play a lot of cover one with some cover two. Very few teams in college football play this way, but this is kind of the hallmark of LSU. This means, Alan, there's going to be a huge premium placed on our wide receivers beating their defensive backs in key matchups throughout the game. LSU is not a team that is going to allow you to throw bubble screens because they're playing man defense. They purposely will keep an extra guy in the box to run by doing this. So if safety comes down, they do not give you. The numbers game, Allen. This is not a game where you're going to want to sit on the sidelines and count whether we have eight versus or seven or seven versus or six because LSU keeps it very straightforward. They're going to make sure that you don't have numbers in either regard. You're going to have to beat the man in front of you. It's a fun style to watch and play with. This could be a very interesting style for us to counter However, LSU is not their typically loaded self, although they've been very good on defense. They're very inexperienced. Their defensive line, which normally is amazing, is not. In fact, it's a weak spot this year, not generating a lot of pressures, not generating a lot of sacks. They do have fantastic linebackers, and their safeties, while productive, also inexperienced. So this is not a traditionally sound LSU defense, but they've had very, very good results. And a lot of that has to do with the style with which they play, which I think, unfortunately for us, Allen matches up really well all right to end this scouting report we have penalties amazingly and this is a weird stat i can't recall coming across this but lsu forces teams into more than 10 penalties a game i'm not even sure how you're capable of doing that uh, but the way they play is causing teams a lot of problems and so there, there are a lot of holding calls uh, a lot of pass interference calls on offense whatever the case may be they're forcing a lot of them and of course as you know in this podcast we are amongst the worst in college football at getting penalties. So that will be a narrative to watch this
2: weekend. Auburn fans would say a lot of maybe illegitimate penalties. That's how they converted a lot of those third downs in the Auburn game was defensive pass interference. So look for that. Maybe they're just good at forcing defensive pass interference through being physical. All right, injuries. UF is very healthy at this point. Uh, There's even a rumor that, Highly rated freshman Jacob Copeland will be available for this game. Now, I don't expect him to actually play, but maybe he will. So good news for Florida. Unless something happens during the week. And it usually does, LSU week. Weird stuff happens. Uh, Unexpected suspensions and whatnot. But, yeah, healthy going into this game. And that's good news for Florida because we're going to need everybody available and being on board Okay, Edo, Coach Orgeron, had a quote this week where he said, Florida's defense will be the best he has faced this season. Is that just coach speak, or do you think there's some legitimacy to that?
1: I think there's some legitimacy. We talked about will Florida's defense be top 50 this year, right? And we both agreed that they totally would be. And so far, we're trending between like 25th and 35th. So that's that's a great improvement. By all accounts, we have not really played tremendous offenses. LSU is also not a tremendous offense. I think what Ed O is really suggesting here is that Florida will be the best defensive scheme and personnel to cover what LSU wants to do. The debate there is what you believe about Auburn's defense. And Auburn's defense is good. It's very good. So I'm not sure if that's true, but I can I can tell that he's looking matchup across the board and saying, The matchups in this game are less favorable for LSU than maybe they have been, especially because they don't attack the safeties very often with their throws. They attack the corners. Uh, Their receivers are not the typical receivers LSU has, but they're very deep, very talented, but they don't have like a Jarvis Landry or an Odell Beckham or, you know, one of those super game breaking receivers out there. I don't know. I'm hesitant on this one. I think we're amongst the best. I think we'll find out after this weekend if that's true. Uh,
2: I don't think it's untrue. I think there's a little bit of coach speak, but some legitimacy to that. I don't think he would say it if it was obviously false, but I, I don't know. that. Or if we are the best defense, it's not like we're head and shoulders against everybody else. Although the defense has been improving since the Kentucky game. The return of David Reese and Jefferson understanding the scheme a little better. It allows us to be a little more exotic in what we're doing, so maybe he's right. Okay, James, let's do a little keys to victory here. I'll start... This is going to be a close game, I think. Every LSU game seems to come down to the wire, and I I have a feeling this will as well. feels like we could have won every game or lost every game, and that's going to be a fun environment. I'm actually feeling a little more hopeful than I was coming into the Mississippi State game because I do like some of our matchups. I think we can match what they're doing on offense with our defense. Um, Now, that's a lot dependent on Trey Dean. How is he going to be in this game? CJ Henderson, I expect to hold up well. And then I, I do like our receivers versus their corners. I think we can make plays in space. I think we can break tackles.